Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 this morning. Get out your personal copy of the Word of God. A blessing that is to, to have that treasure. Open that up to Matthew chapter 27. You know, the Bible is a foreign book. Did you ever think about that? The Bible is a foreign book. It's actually an ancient book, and it's an Asian book. We can call it an ancient Asian book. It was written thousands of years ago. It was written in a part of the world that is vastly different than what you and I have ever known. Customs are different. The way people interacted was different. The, the economies in which they lived and operated were different. But there are some things that are identical. And it's the human predicament. It's the condition of the human heart, the human soul, the need, the fundamental need of mankind. That is entirely identical. And so while it is an ancient book and an Asian book and foreign to us in so many, many ways, we still can, as we study it together, by the Spirit of God, it can pierce our hearts. And I'm hoping this morning that it does just that. Because it's an ancient Asian book, and it speaks of kings, and that's something that's foreign to us. We don't really know anything about kings. For some of us, we have kind of a fascination a little bit with what goes on over in England, the goings-on there of the royal family. It makes for good pageantry, I suppose. But we really don't know anything about what it means to live under a king. But for ancient Israel, the king was very much fundamental to their entire society. He played a very special, a very important role in the life of the average Israelite. The king was the lamp of the nation. He was the lamp of the nation. In fact, the nation was in corporate solidarity with their king. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 1, when after the civil war that resulted with the death of Saul and David ruling over the house of Judah down in Hebron, Israel sent ambassadors to him, and they made a most interesting statement to David. They said, we are your bone and your flesh. It's interesting at many levels, uh, not the least of which is that's the terminology that Adam used for Eve. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It speaks of that corporate solidarity that very much the, the king embodied the nation. It was the role of the king to follow Yahweh and to lead the nation as they followed him. Deuteronomy 17 and 
verses 14 to 20 have some specific instructions for the king of Israel that they are to make their own personal copy of the law and they are to read it regularly and reflect upon it. It's to govern them as they govern and lead the nation. It was the role of the king to watch over the people, to love the people, to serve the people, to lead the people, to go into battle before the people and to defeat their enemies. Psalm 78, verse 72, summarizing the rule and reign of David, says that as David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and he guided them with his skillful hands. The king shepherded the nation of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 7, after Solomon's death, when his son Rehoboam is, comes before the nation and uh, the people speak to him and they, and they say, make our load lighter. And he says to the nation, Let me, give me a little time to think about it. And he goes and he seeks some advice. And the older and wiser men in the kingdom, they give him this advice. They spoke to him, Rehoboam, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Of course, we all know how that turned out, right? He listened to the other fellow idiots in the kingdom with him and it was torn from his hand. The king is to lead, he's to serve, he's to love, he's to, to act as their warrior and deliverer, and the people are to love and to follow and to serve their king. And as they do so, they will enjoy peace and prosperity. That's how God designed it. So the idea that the people would kill their own king is an incredibly faithless act destined to bring no end of misery upon the realm. In fact, when you reflect upon the, the history, excuse me, the history of the, of the ten northern tribes after the, the uh, split of the kingdom, in, in just 200 years, from 931 to 722, seven kings were murdered while in office. And we know what the history of the northern kingdom was like. Proverbs 28 and verse 2 says, By the transgression of a land, many are its princes, many contenders for the throne. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, so it endures. Matthew here in his gospel, and we're coming near the end of this gospel. Lord willing, we will finish this gospel sometime around the end of June. Okay? Some of you weren't even born when we began, but, <laughs> but we will finish. But just as a reminder, if you, if you turn back a few chapters to chapter 21 and verse 5, you find Matthew's theme for this gospel. Why did he write this gospel? And it's captured, really, in 21 verse 5, and what the people uh, proclaimed. It's a, it's a citation of the prophecy of Isaiah, or Zechariah, actually, Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
Behold, your king is coming to you. Behold, your king, O Israel. So Matthew writes his gospel. He's writing to Jewish Christians. And he's writing to, to basically answer a couple of questions. And the, and the first question is, is, is Jesus really the Messiah? I mean, they are convinced of it. They are, they are Jewish Christians. But they're being asked this question with, with great regularity by their friends and family members. They're under a lot of pressure to, to, to conform or, or to be evicted from the synagogues. And so the question that keeps coming to them and that they need to answer, and they need to be able to answer well, is, is Jesus really the Messiah? And the second question is, if so, then why did the nation reject him? That's really what this gospel is all about. Is Jesus the Messiah? And if so, why did the Jewish nation reject him? They needed to have an answer. So here we are in Matthew 27, and we're in beginning in verse 26 to kind of locate ourselves here. And we're going to look at verses 26 through 54, but not all this morning. We'll break it up. But this section here is incredibly dark, incredibly dark. So as we're looking at it together, we're going to see played out the, the, uh, the darkness of the depth of the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. I mean, how bad does it get? Just as an outline for the section here, 26 to 50, 54 got three words, so it's a simple three-word outline for you this morning. Three words that capture the horror and the glory of this dark event. There is horror here, to be sure, but there is glory as well. We will look at verses 26 to 42. Actually, we'll probably go all the way through to 44. And we'll look at that first Word and the word is abuse. Abuse. So 26 to 42, 44, somewhere in there. Abuse. It's all about abuse. Now it's popular in Roman Catholic theology and also in some circles of pietistic Protestantism to focus on the physical sufferings of Christ, to really elaborate on the crucifixion and all of the horror and, and all of the pain and all of the suffering involved in crucifixion. And, and whole sermons can be preached on such things. There was a movie some years ago, I never saw it myself, but it was produced, uh, was it Mel Gibson, I guess, and the essential theme of the movie was about the physical sufferings of Christ in the crucifixion. And beloved, the theology that runs behind that is Roman Catholic theology. And it's, very, it's really interesting, I think, in the fact that the, that the Gospels themselves 
actually speak very little about the suffering of crucifixion. They don't really talk much about it at all. In fact, uh, one writer notes this. He says, Matthew here, the section we're looking at, Matthew dismisses in a single word one of the most dreadful ways of dying that people have ever devised. Verse 35 is that single word. It's actually a, a participle. It's rendered in the English when they had crucified him. It's, it's literally having crucified. That's it. One word to describe it. It's also popular among some to, to sort of focus on what we owe to our Savior because of his suffering. To, to think about how much he suffered there on the cross and, and then to, to um, sort of focus on that, to, to, to recognize how much we really owe him. And, and, and then the, the danger in all of that is that it can lead to a, a debtor's ethic, the idea that we need to try to pay him back. We need to serve God because look how much Christ has suffered for you or for me. When the offering plate goes by, we need, to, we need to put something in that offering plate. After all, couldn't we afford to give a little back to him after he has given so much to us? But again, the New Testament doesn't approach it that way. For the New Testament, it, it says we respond to him out of love, not out of, a, of a, a debt that we are somehow trying to make payments on. It's significant that the New Testament writers focus on the meaning of his death. Not the death itself. The meaning of the death. And we would do well to follow their approach. We would do well to follow it. So as I was reading this week over this section, over and over and and thinking about how do I prepare and preach from this section of Matthew's gospel about the crucifixion. And as I thought more and more about it and continued to, to look at it, something stood out to me. And what stood out to me was a, was a threefold repetition of, a, of an expression. I'll show it to you because it's going to become our outline for this morning. And the threefold repetition is the, is the expression, King of the Jews. I want you to see it. It's in verse 29. Hail, King of the Jews. Down in verse 37. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then over in verse 42. He is the king of Israel. Each time, there are, there are three separate sections where, where Jesus is being mocked. And in each of those sections, Matthew is, is very specific to record for us the statements on the lip of his mockers that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. Now, that's not accidental. 
I think it's actually with great irony that he records these things for us. That in the midst of, of Jesus' agony, in the midst of the mocking, in the midst of the, of the shaming of the, of the whole crucifixion, repetitively on the lips of his, of his uh, mockers, they say he's the king of the Jews. And that's exactly right. It's exactly right. It is Matthew's theme. Behold your king. Now, obviously, in the midst of this, he doesn't look much like a king. It's only with eyes of faith that one can know that. It's really like the words of Caiaphas recorded for us over in John chapter 11 in verse 51, where, where Caiaphas says there that, that Jesus needs to die because one man needs to die in order to save the nation. And John records for us that Caiaphas, being high priest that year, unknowingly prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation of Israel. I mean, Caiaphas is all about, hey, let's get rid of this guy because if we don't kill him, then, you know, it's going to bring a, a real problem to us. So unknowingly, Caiaphas prophesies the death of Christ on the behalf of, of his nation. Unknowingly here, these mocking people voice the, the incredible and profound reality that Jesus is the king. He is the king. And he doesn't look like it. In this, in these, in this moment and in these circumstances, he does not look like a king. In fact, he looks the furthest one could imagine from a king. But he is the king. And he will return. And when he returns, it, it won't be as the suffering servant. It won't be as the beaten and bloodied one. He will return as the conquering king with a rod of iron, smashing all those in rebellion to him. He will return as the, as the deliverer king, rescuing Israel from her enemies, and in particular the Antichrist, smashing the kingdoms of this world that are arrayed against him, establishing his great and long-prophesied millennial kingdom, bringing in the reign and rule of righteousness that every heart desires. It's only with eyes of faith that we can see the reality now. But Matthew wants us to see it. He wants us to see it. So, let's take a look and see how he puts this together. Verses 26 to 32, first section. Hail King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. Then when he had released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Now last week we noted that the Romans practiced three kinds of scourging. Three kinds. The the more mild version, I guess we could say it that way, the, the intermediate version, and then the, the version that would, that would prepare a person for crucifixion. 
John chapter 19 and verse 1 speaks of Jesus being scourged, but there it was the more mild version. But here in verse 26 of chapter 27, it is the, it is the most severe one. It is the one that, that if you've read or heard uh, you know, about Roman scourging and what it would do to a, to a man's back, that's what happened here, yes. It was done to prepare a man for crucifixion. It was done to, to weaken them severely. It could kill them. And Jesus suffered that here. Now, Pilate has made his official pronouncement, right? And then he has, he has turned Jesus over. That's what it says. Having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. He has turned him over to the soldiers, and they are to prepare and carry out the execution. And that takes a little bit of time. Got to get all, uh, everything ready. It's still early in the morning, and they got to get it all ready. And so while they are preparing everything to be ready for his execution, and it's not just his, remember, there's two others that have to be executed with him. So, you know, they all have to be scourged and so forth. The soldiers decide while they're waiting to have a little fun. Verses 27 to 31, to 30, I guess. They, they want to have some fun with their prisoner. So Jesus has been found guilty of being a king, and so they decide they're going to have a little fun with him. They're going to make sport of him. They're going to amuse themselves by mocking him as a king. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. They took him into the praetorium. That's a Latin word, and it just refers to the, basically to the governor's residence. And there in the, at the governor's residence, there would be a contingent of soldiers would also be garrisoned. We're not exactly sure where the praetorium was in ancient Israel or in Jerusalem. Perhaps the uh, Fortress Antonia that, that uh, was at the corner of the Temple Mount there on the, on the northwest corner. Or perhaps it was Herod's palace that was uh, located up on the western hill. There's some difference of opinion, but wherever it was... That's where Jesus was taken into, and there the soldiers gathered. It says uh, the uh, whole Roman cohort around him. Now, a cohort would be about 600 soldiers, although I don't know that it's necessary uh, to believe that there was all 600 there. Certainly, uh, there would be the sizable portion, and Matthew would refer to it as a cohort. So there was a large group of soldiers there, many hundreds, no doubt, and they bring Jesus in here, and they, they strip off his outer garments, verse 28. And they, they dress him up like a king. They, they play a, a mock and cruel version of dress up. And they put first, notice, a scarlet robe on him. A scarlet robe. Mark says it's a purple robe. Mark 15, 17. Matthew says it's a scarlet robe. So which is it, scarlet or purple? 
Yes. Okay, a couple things. Uh, where did the robe come from? Well, probably it was a, it was a discarded uh, officer's robe. Uh, Roman officers would wear kind of a cape as part of their uniform. So, it was, you know, this is, an, this is a garrison of soldiers. It's probably leftover uniform laying around, the, the, the robe from it, the cape. They were scarlet. But if it's old and leftover and the red is kind of faded a little and, you know, red, purple, they're all kind of close. And so I think that's the answer. I think it's a reddish-purple robe that they placed on. By the way, the ancients weren't as concerned about colors as, as we are. Uh, I would fit well in an ancient world. You know, there's only just a few colors. I don't, you know, but for some people, they see the world in, wow, many colors. For me, there are two, black and white. That's a joke. Thank you. <laughs> So it was, a, it was a faded old officer's robe, and they, and they put it on him. Why? Well, because kings wore purple robes. And then they put this crown of thorns, verse 29, right? It says they twisted together a crown of thorns. Now, now some people think that, you know, they did that in order to torture him. You know, they, they wrapped this crown of thorns, and they jammed it on his head and pierced his head with all of these thorns, and I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think that was the purpose, the thorns likely were from the date palm, and the thorns of the date palm can grow up to 12 inches in length. Up to 12 inches in length. And by the way, it was the, it was the palm, the, the fronds of the date palm that just a week before they were throwing in the road as the, you know, the soldier, or as Jesus came by, you know, and right, hailing him as king of the Jews. So I think what they were doing here is, is they were making a mock crown. So you, you, you weave the thorn, thorny part together and the thorns radiate out like rays of light from the king's scepter, or, or crown rather. And, and if you look at ancient Roman coins, that's exactly the way the Caesars were portrayed. As they were portrayed as, as uh, semi-gods. And so their, their crowns would have these rays of light sticking out from them like these long thorns from this crown. And the idea was, you know, that light radiated, radiated out of him. And so here's the king of the Jews. That's what he's been convicted of. And so let's mock him. Let's make a crown that, that has, you know, rays of light coming out from it. But it's all made out of thorns. It's just a joke. The whole thing's just a joke. A cruel joke, but a joke. So yeah, they rammed it on his head. And I'm sure it, you know, it didn't feel good. Then they give him a scepter, right? Verse 29, a reed in his right hand. Every king has to have a scepter. A, a scepter is the symbol of authority, of ruling power. So a reed, that's made, something made of cane, kind of like bamboo. Okay, so it's this, it's this bamboo-ish stick they give him. They're just kind of looking around, finding stuff and, you know, and, and dressing him up in it. Then notice they, they kneel down before him, verse 29, they all knelt down before him, and they mocked him. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, now hail would, could be a common greeting, but, it, but it's also a salutation for royalty, like, Hail, Caesar. Maybe a, maybe a more modern idea would be, Long live the king. So here, you've got this picture of this, this broken, beaten, 
bleeding, pathetic individual, mockingly dressed in a king's robe with a crown of light emanating from his head, with a, the with a ruling scepter in his hand, and all these Roman legionnaires kneeling down before him and saying, Long live the king! It's ludicrous. I'm sure that, that the long live the king, you know, the hail Caesar was, was done in a, in a jesting, jeering kind of way. Of course, they show their contempt for him because after they have offered him this, this sort of mock worship, verse 30, they, they cover him, they shower him in spittle. And they take his scepter from him. And they beat him about the head and shoulders. Now again, it's, it's not so much to hurt him, although I'm sure it hurt. It was to belittle him. It was to mock him. It was to, it was to debase him. Humiliate him. Like the prophet Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah 50 and verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And in the midst of all of this, king of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. Well, verse 31, when they're done sporting with him, they're ready now to crucify him. They, they took the scarlet robe off him. They put his own garments back on him and they led him away to be crucified. Typically, uh, it would be a group of four soldiers that would lead the prisoner out to be crucified. On the way to their execution, the prisoner would be forced to carry the crossbeam of their own cross the instrument of their, of their execution. They would force them to carry it. And the reason they would force them to carry it is because they wanted to demonstrate to all the world as they looked on that no one got away with rebelling against Rome. In the end, it doesn't matter. You will submit. And we will demonstrate that you have submitted because you will carry your own means of execution. Of course, Jesus takes that and says, right, pick up your cross and follow me. It's a statement about submission. Okay, it's a statement about submission. John tells us, John 19, 17, Jesus starts out carrying the cross member uh, himself, but, uh, but he's, he's evidently been weakened greatly by all the abuse that he's been subjected to. And, and he's unable to, to continue to bear up under the weight of it. And, and so the soldiers uh, grab someone who just is walking by, coming into the city. They're, they're marching him out of the city. And there, verse 32, as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Now, it's not like Simon was, you know, walking along, following this, sees Jesus stumble under the cross, loves him so much that he, re he jumps in for the rescue, scoops it up off his shoulders, and, you know, and off he goes, although that's sort of the stuff of legend. Simon was a guy who's coming into the city that day, and the Roman guards, you know, see him, and they go, hey, you, get over here. 
pick that thing up and carry it. And if they tell you to carry it one mile, you carry it two, Jesus says. Now, it's interesting again because Mark tells us in Mark 15:21 that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you would want to know that. Because evidently, Alexander and Rufus were well known to Mark's writers. So Alexander and Rufus evidently were believers and part of the early church, and maybe Simon was too. We don't really know. The second time that Matthew records for us this statement that Jesus is king is now in verses 33 to 37 or it's now been voiced by Pilate. So first it's, it's by the mocking soldiers. Next it's by Pilate. It's on in verse 37. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So the soldiers are marching Jesus out. Verse 32, they're coming out. That is, they're going outside the city walls. And uh, the writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews 13.13, uh, 13, reflecting on that, says, let us go out to him. So he's taken out to a place called Golgotha, which in Aramaic means skull or the place of the skull. So they take him to the place of the skull. Why it's called the place of the skull, we don't know. We can only guess. Some suppose it's because that's where executions were carried out. And so it just became known as the place of the skull. That's possible. Others say that, well, the topography there resembled a human skull. And so everyone went by there and says, hey, you know what? That, kind of, that hill looks like a skull. Maybe. The only problem is, and I think it's kind of interesting, is um, uh, the Gospels don't talk about it being a hill. I know that messes with our hymnology. Right? You know, all our songs are about a hill. All our pictures are a hill with, you know, the cross is on the hill. But none of the Gospels don't say it was a hill. Doesn't say that. Did I, like, ruin anybody's day? <laughs> I mean, you can still think it's a hill if you like to. It's okay. We don't know. We don't know. Now, those of you who have been to Israel or whatever, you've, you've no doubt gone to Gordon's Calvary which is a wonderful, beautiful place. And uh, boy, I'd sure like that to be the place. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a ridge line there that if you turn your head sideways and close one eye, it looks like a skull. <laughs> and there's a beautiful, you know, tomb with a stone that rolls over it and, and so forth. But I just, you know, I don't think so. It, it, I wish it was. It's really cool. It's a garden. I mean, everything's perfect. But the best evidence is that Jesus was crucified just outside the ancient northern wall of the city where now the Church of the Holy Sepulcher stands. So that's probably where it was. It's kind of a bummer when you go there. Gordon's Calvary is much nicer. But anyway, he's taken there to be crucified. In verse 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. So they offer him a drink, and, uh, and Matthew says it's mixed with gall. And again, uh, Mark tells us, Mark 15, 23, it's mixed with myrrh. 
So which is it? Is it gall or is it myrrh? Yes. Yes. Gall, mm, the gall bladder produces bile. Bile is bitter, and I've already said more than I know. Okay? I think the basic idea that Matthew is communicating here is that the wine that has been given to him is exceedingly bitter. So bitter, he's unwilling to drink it. The myrrh that Mark records that was put in there is what made the wine bitter. Now, there's a, it's very popular and, um, you know, among Bible teachers to, to say that myrrh is a narcotic, a mild narcotic. And so they mixed the myrrh with the wine, and uh, it made it mildly narcotic as sort of a take the edge off the pain. And uh, the way the explanation goes is according to Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 6, uh, that you, you are, those who are perishing are to be offered strong drink, and it does say that in Proverbs 31, 6. And, and uh, there's later Talmudic um, uh, tradition that the, that the women of Jerusalem would, would mix myrrh with wine and produce this somewhat narcotic drink, and they would offer it to a prisoner compassionately to try to take a little bit of the edge off it. And it was the custom of the day. And Jesus, this is the way it goes, and when Jesus, uh, they offer this to him, and he tastes it, and he, and he see, you know, he recognizes the reality that this is, this is mildly narcotic. He, he refuses it because he doesn't want his senses dulled in any way. He's going to endure the full wrath of God without any aid or help. And that may all be true. There's another possible explanation, and personally, I like it better. I think it's better. Uh, it's offered by D.A. Carson and some others, and, and basically what they postulate here is that the, the purpose of the myrrh was to make the wine bitter, and it was given to Jesus as a further way to mock him. He's thirsty. And so in the, in the midst of, of his thirst, hey, let's give, him a, let's give him something to drink. But hey, you know what? Let's put something in it so it's nasty. You know? You can almost hear junior high boys uh, thinking like that, Right? And it's just their further efforts to, to mock and debase this, this man, this prisoner. Now, I think, I think it's better personally because if it were custom to put myrrh into the wine to dull the pain, then why would Jesus have to taste it first? He would know the custom. And so why wouldn't he just refuse it? Beyond that, when, notice here, uh, verse 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. The, the antecedent of the pronoun they is the soldiers, not the women of Jerusalem. So it's not these, these well-meaning women of Jerusalem that are, it's the soldiers that give it to him. So I just, you know, whatever you like it. But, but I think it's just further pointing out the reality that, that, that he is being mocked and debased and humiliated at every step of the way. Again, dear Carson here, he writes, quote, like David his father, Jesus looked for sympathy but found none. By the way, Matthew has running in the background of his mind, Psalm 69, verses 2021, where it's recorded, reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick and I looked for sympathy but there was none and for comforters but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 69, 2021, a, a messianic crucifixion psalm. 
So going with, uh, with that view, after they have further mocked him, verse 35, when they had crucified him, so there it is, the, the, all the agony of crucifixion summarized in one word. When they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and, they, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. Now, it's about 9 a.m. in the morning, according to Mark's gospel. Mark 15, 25 says it's about 9 a.m. So it's in the morning. Roman soldiers, they're merely exercising their rights here, okay? Uh, they have, if you're on the execution detail, you get to keep the possessions of the guy you kill. So he has some clothes, and how do you divide it up? Oh, you know, you throw fingers for it, and that's basically what they do. They cast lots. And they divide up his clothes. Of course, we're told that his outer tunic is one piece. And rather than tear the thing into, into four rags, you know, they, they throw fingers for it and one guy gets it. All right? But they divide up his, his uh, garments. And then verse 37. This is what Matthew is, I believe, pushing towards. Verse 37. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, crucifixion was designed to be cruel. It was designed to linger. It was designed to, to inflict excruciating pain. In fact, it was so horrible that, that people would be undone by the thought of it. In fact, as a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified except under direct order of the emperor. So as a Roman citizen, you were protected from crucifixion unless the emperor himself personally uh, imposed that sentence upon you. All right, The apostle Paul, Roman citizen from birth, Remember when he died, he was beheaded. Okay, Peter was crucified because Peter wasn't a citizen. So, terrible, awful, terrible thing, dreadful thing. And part of the process, again, of, of Rome uh, making sure that everybody understands that, that crime does not pay, and in particular, rebellion does not pay, and that's what you would be crucified for. You wouldn't be crucified for robbery. You wouldn't necessarily be crucified for murder. You would be crucified for insurrection, for rebellion. But they would write out on a placard the charge against you. This is why you're being crucified. And they would put it around your neck. And as they march you out to your execution, you know, everybody's looking on. And it's clear what the reason this man, this individual, is being crucified. Once they arrive at the scene, then the placard would be taken from the neck of the victim and it would be nailed to the, to the cross above them. That's why I'm pretty confident here that uh, it was what we you know, understand as a traditional cross, that he was crucified. Not an X, but a, you know, a vertical piece with a horizontal. So they put up the charge. This is Jesus, King of the Jews, verse 37. All four Gospels record the charge a little bit differently. Verbiage is a little bit different. John tells us it was actually written out in three languages. It was written in Hebrew, which probably meant Aramaic at that time. But it was in Hebrew, it was in Latin, and it was in Greek. Okay? So the charge was written out in all three languages. If you put all the Gospels together, I think this is probably what was written. This is Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. This is Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Again, we're indebted to John's gospel that, uh, that the uh, Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel, were so incensed by this that they went to Pilate and asked him to change the placard, not to, uh, to say that this is the king of the Jews, but that he said he was the king of the Jews. 
And Pilate, this, he, I think he's really delighting now in the opportunity to, to uh, turn the tables on his, uh, those that antagonized him. He says, what I've written, I've written. Basically, lump it. Okay? I'm crucifying your king. You told me he was, that he claimed to be your king. I'm saying he is your king, and I'm crucifying your king. And by crucifying your king, I'm crucifying you. But here's Pilate, verse 37, unknowingly bearing witness to Jerusalem and to the world that Jesus is what? The king. Jesus is the king. And that leads us to the third, beginning here in verse 38. At the time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also casting insult, were also insulting him with the same words. So here's the final scene. And, and again, you know, Matthew covers the crucifixion in one word. But, but the mocking, look how much it takes. It takes up. But here's the scene. There are three groups now to mock him. The first is the condemned sinners, verse 38 and 44. That's the, the other two, or not the other, I shouldn't say the other two insurrectionists because Jesus wasn't an insurrectionist. But two insurrectionists, one on either side, they take up the mock against him, right? They, they begin to hurl all kinds of abuse at him. Now Luke records for us in Luke 23 that one of them subsequently repents and calls on Jesus to have mercy on him when he comes in his kingdom and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise and that man is saved. That man is saved. It's never too late to turn to Christ. Never too late. But here... Matthew doesn't cover that. It's not germane to his message. His message is that Jesus is the king. So here are these insurrectionists uh, hauling, uh, are, are calling out all this abuse. I mean, you know, how much hatred has got to be in somebody's heart? You think about this. When they're dying and, uh, and they're taking the last breaths to, to revile some guy who's dying next to them. They don't really even know. There's depths of wickedness in a human heart. Then, verses 39 to 40, we have what I'm calling the ignorant sinners. Right? Those passing by, hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Now, it could be uh, people coming and going from the city. He was crucified near a city gate. Uh, and so there's probably some of that. But I, I think beyond that, it's probably those that were there that called for his crucifixion earlier in the morning. I think they just you know, wanted to go out and see the spectacle. So they followed him out, and they're taunting him, and they're, and they're, they're jeering him, and they're, and they're picking up the false accusation, right? You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, verse 40, save yourself. So these aren't just random passerbys. These are people who, who know something of what's been going on here. 
And they're just throwing it in his face. They're just, they're just mocking him in all of this. And, and interesting, they also mimic and pick up the line of Satan. The end of verse 40, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Remember Jesus in the wilderness, how Satan approached him? If you are the son of God, do what? Turn these stones into bread. So if you're the son of God, do a miracle, come down from the cross. Beloved, listen. Jesus never did a self-serving miracle. Never. Never. And he never will. The miracles that Jesus did were to certify who he was for those who had have eyes to see. He never did a miracle for his own benefit. And he wouldn't do it here. So we have the condemned sinners, we have the ignorant sinners, finally we have the religious sinners in verse 41 to 44. The chief priests, along with the scribes and the elders, listen, that's the Sanhedrin. That's the, that's the ruling leadership of the nation of Israel. And I, it, it stands out to me because normally people in that position of, of power and authority, they're kind of too delicate to get their hands dirty, you know what I'm saying? I mean, for them to, to they've already gotten the, the sentence of condemnation. For them to, to follow it out to the spectacle and to, and to continue to, to mock him in his death just, again, reveals the, the, the depth of the hatred that has gripped their hearts. It's incredible. I mean, they're enjoying this. In the same way, the chief priests... Also, along with the scribes and the elders were mocking him and saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Notice they're talking to each other. I think the picture is they're talking to each other, joking with each other, but loud enough so he can hear. Says he's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He saved others. He can't save himself. Doesn't have the power. Doesn't have the, uh, doesn't have the authority. He can't save, right? If he can't save himself, he really is not going to be able to save anybody else is kind of their, their idea, their mock. Of course, we know that the resurrection puts all of that, reveals it to be the lie that it is. They go beyond that. He said, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we will believe. Again, they're, they're mocking the king put on a cross by his own subjects. They're just saying that is ridiculous. He's not the king. We wouldn't have crucified him if he was the king. So they challenge him in his authority. They taunt him. They say, if, you know, we'll believe if you do another miracle and you remember how Jesus handled that in Matthew 12 when they wanted him to do another miracle and he said, you'll never get another miracle except the sign of Jonah, right? That's it. God does not do miracles to satisfy the rebellious um, nature of humanity. People who demand God prove himself through the, through the miraculous should expect judgment, not miracle. And then they Say he has a misplaced trust in God, verse 43. Right? He may trust in God, 
But if God really delighted in him, that is, that if God really cared for him, then God wouldn't leave him in this place of suffering. God would rescue him. And again, they, they have no understanding of God. They have no understanding of God's purposes in suffering. Again, unknowingly, they, they voice the anguish of, of Psalm 22, another messianic crucifixion psalm. Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you. Or let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. So they're just mocking him from one end to the other. Beloved, this is, this is darkness. This is wickedness. But in the midst of the darkness and the wickedness, three times, three times, Matthew points out to us that Jesus is what? The king. He's the king. He's the king. If he is the king, and he is, in the midst of, of this incredible suffering and humiliation and debasement, then how much more is he the king in my troubles and yours? See, I think that's the, I think that's the legitimate application point for us this morning. He is the king. He doesn't look like the king. And the world doesn't think he's the king. And, and the world mocks him. But he is the king. And so if, you, if you're in a place right now where, where you're suffering, and it's all stacked up against you, and it, and it seems like the world is mocking you and your faith, Jesus is king. See, he's king. It doesn't look like it right now, but he's king. And that's the anchor of our soul. That's the anchor of our soul. I mean, last Sunday at the end of that sermon, we made some application and I said some things that had been welling up in my heart and mind that I felt like I needed to say. And I know it was unsettling to some people. I know that for a fact because some of you called me. What is the source of hope in a world gone mad? What is the, what is the source of hope when, when in your own personal life there, there is tragedy? Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And if he is king here in the, in the darkness and wickedness of this event, then he is king in anything you and I are going through. That's the hope. That's the hope in all of this. It's my prayer that God would Strengthen our grip on that reality. We've got more to learn in this passage to be sure. But today, walk out of here, I pray, confident, confident 
that you're a child of the king. Let's pray. Well, our Father, on the lips of wicked men who intended it for evil, you recorded for all time that most incredible and profound reality that Jesus is the King. Father, in the midst of of what we have been reading this morning and and studying to to the natural man, to the the faithless eye, he couldn't have been further removed from being a king. There was nothing about him that looked stately, powerful, majestic. And yet... With eyes of faith, we can see it. Oh Lord, may you deepen us in our faith. Some of us are going through some really, really hard times. We don't think we're going to make it. Father, we need to be encouraged with the truth that Jesus is king. That we, by faith in him, are children of the king. And as his suffering was not pointless, so neither is ours. Our Father, for the church in America, for Foothill Bible Church, we don't know what what the future holds. We don't know what these days will be. The storm clouds gather and they are dark and they are ominous. And we could be fearful if we lose sight of the reality that Jesus is the King. May you help us this week to to lash ourselves firmly to that anchor. When our hearts are prone to wander, when we are forgetful, remind us of that truth. May we go forth with boldness, not foolishly or or giddily, soberly, but confidently, recognizing that the sovereign one, the king of creation, is our savior and our friend. It's in his name we pray.